Is anthrax becoming an obsolete weapon? Biotechnology has changed the face of medical research. In developing defenses against anthrax, advances in genomics and proteonomics have suggested new approaches. Perhaps the day of weaponized anthrax are numbered. You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Today we are discussing anthrax during Bioterrorism Week here on ReachMD. In this segment, we will be focusing on the future of anthrax research and defense. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Nicholas Bergman. Dr. Bergman received his PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is currently an assistant professor in the School of Biology at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta. He has recently published a paper examining some of the genomic properties of anthrax in a journal of bacteriology. Welcome, Dr. Bergman. Thank you. We're happy to have you on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your current research efforts? Sure. I'm involved in a couple different projects, but the common thread here is that there's a need for new drug targets and new vaccine options for B. anthracis, the causative agent of anthrax. And so what we're doing is applying some systems-level approaches. These are approaches that take kind of a global view, either looking at um, the mRNA transcription across the entire genome, looking at genome sequences themselves, looking at the protein content of a B. anthracis cell in a particular environment, taking approaches like these and trying to use these huge data sets in a way that will let us kind of call out the best options for new drug targets, new vaccine targets, the things that really give us uh, a choke point that would allow us to really choke off growth of B. anthracis in a particular setting. With effective vaccines and antibiotics now, why is this necessary to find these new choke points? That's a good question. So the vaccine that we have now is helpful, but it's not, it's not a great vaccine. It is not standardized dose-to-dose, so there are some issues with production consistency. There are also issues with protective level achieved. We have a vaccine now that takes six shots over the course of the first 18 months. You don't really get any protective immunity until after the second shot, so you're waiting a solid two weeks before you get any protective immunity. And you need yearly boosters after that to maintain the protection. Now, on top of all of that, the protective level achieved is actually pretty shaky in some cases. We know that it does a decent job of preventing anthrax in a lot of animals, but we don't know, for instance, how it does in humans all that well. We can't test it very well because we don't have a lot of naturally occurring cases. So it's been tested in a mill, I think, in New Hampshire. And there it, it prevented some of the anthrax, but it didn't completely prevent it. That anthrax you're really talking about is cutaneous anthrax as opposed to the weaponized inhalational anthrax. Right. So it's pretty difficult to say how well it protects against inhalational anthrax. We can use non-human primate models to test that. The problem there is that we see such a big range of results occurring in different primate models that it's tough to say which one we should use in really extrapolating to humans. So the vaccine is, is definitely a good thing to have, but it's not optimal. So we could use better options there. And in antibiotics case, what we have is a situation where we have 20 or 30 or a relatively large number of different antibiotic options for treating anthrax now. The problem is that we know that at least one government, the Soviet Union back in the 80s and early 90s, 
and maybe other governments around the world, have spent a lot of time and money in trying to develop antibiotic-resistant strains of anthracis. So knowing that means that if there are stockpiles out there, we have a pretty good idea that at some point we may be facing a strain that doesn't respond to any of the drugs that we have now. So there's a pretty good chance that we're going to need new options if we ever face anthracis in a biowarfare sense. So I think to summarize for our listeners, because of suspected anthrax research going on in other countries, the cur- the anthrax we deal with now may not be the anthrax we deal with tomorrow. Exactly. So by identifying different proteins and different parts of the genomic code to attack, it seems likely that if we have five or six of these strategies available to us, that any future researcher won't be able to modify all six to make the new strain impervious. That's right. After all, if the more modifications one makes, the less it is like anthrax, so you would start losing some of its wonderful weapon-like qualities. Maybe, yeah. Well, that can be the hope. How did you get interested in anthrax research? I was always interested in the bacterial pathogen and host interaction and started working on some other organisms, Haemophilus influenzae for one, and got interested in anthrax right around 2001, was interested in it a little bit before the attacks, but certainly after the attacks happened, there was a lot of research funding and a lot of attention being paid to anthracis, and there were some unique opportunities, and one of those was in being able to use some of these systems-level approaches, the ones using, say, DNA microarrays or rapid genome sequencing. These were methods that I was particularly interested in, and I had been following those for a while, and there weren't that many attempts or even opportunities to apply those to bacterial pathogens. So the anthracis kind of represented this this unique opportunity to pursue an interest that I was interested in quite a lot for a long time and use some of the methods that I have been following and developing for a long time, too. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Nicholas Bergman, an expert on the biology and genomics of anthrax. This show has been focusing on the future of anthrax research and defense. So can you explain to our audience what proteonomics is? I know that's used in um, some of your work and in certainly some of the research on anthrax, but I, I think many of us don't know what it means. Sure. So in general, the term proteomics refers to looking at the entire protein complement of a cell in a given situation. So what we're looking at is not just whether or not one particular protein is there, but whether or not all 5,500, say, of the potential proteins made by bacillus anthracis are there and at what level. So we've done, for instance, um, a study of the B. anthracis spore in which we looked basically just to see what's there in a protein sense. You're basically assembling a huge parts list. Isn't that uh, very difficult and complex? It is. It took quite a while. And... The methods for doing this are becoming more mainstream, but they're still pretty cutting edge. So they're not all that easy to do, and in a lot of ways you have to develop a lot of the side methods. A lot of the things you do to process the data are things that you've developed yourself. But in the end, we're able to make kind of a really powerful claim in terms of being able to say we know exactly what the parts list for the B. anthracis spore is, and we know which parts are more prominent. So those are the ones, for instance, that might be useful as vaccines, because if they're there in a high frequency, they're likely to be seen by the immune system. In general terms, how does one go about even identifying 5,500 different 
protein molecules, gas chromatography, liquid chromatography, what do you do? So this is mostly mass spectrometry. Basically what we have is a tandem mass spec setup where we have kind of a two-dimensional liquid chromatography separation to begin with. So now you're separating the entire protein sample into a large series of small fractions. And then each fraction is shot through this mass spectrometer, which separates the proteins within that sample into discrete peaks. Now each peak is then grabbed by the computer and pushed into a second mass spectrometer, which basically fragments that peak and is able to sequence the peptide within it. So basically what you're getting is within each of these fractions that come out of the liquid chromatography, you're able to separate the proteins and then identify each one, one by one. You're actually sequencing uh, the entire protein? Basically, though we don't necessarily sequence the entire protein. For the most part, what we do is chop the proteins. Prior to doing the liquid chromatography, we chop them into smaller peptides because we only need one peptide of a decent length to, in order to identify a, a whole protein. And what about DNA microarrays that I've read about? What's that about? So that's basically an approach where we have something like a glass microscope slide printed with a number of spots. And the number of spots on the arrays that I use is roughly 300,000. So you have on a microscope slide 300,000 different spots printed. In each spot is a specific sequence of DNA that's printed directly onto that spot using photolithography. So you have small tags of DNA and each spot is a different sequence, and we can design those sequences that, so that each spot corresponds to a different position in the genome. Now, when we harvest RNA from a B-anthracis cell, that RNA is going to be a huge mix of all the different genes that were being expressed at that particular point in time. We float that mRNA over the surface of that glass slide after labeling the mRNA pool with a fluorescent tag. So now each of these mRNAs is floating around with a tag, and what it does basically is float around on those spots until it finds a spot that matches it in sequence. And there it sticks. And now, after we've done this floating and we've washed off some of the nonspecific binding, what we do is basically shine a laser at this microarray. And what we see are spots lighting up wherever the mRNA that corresponds to that position in the genome was present in our original sample. So in a nutshell, what it gives us is a snapshot of the program of gene expression used by B. anthracis when we harvested the mRNA. Who's the lucky person who gets to look through the microscope at the 300,000 spots? <laughs> That's all automated. Oh, it is? Yeah. Yep. Sounded pretty horrible there when I was listening to it. So, uh, so it's not that mind-boggling. Um, what have these methods taught, if anything, about how the pathogen goes from a spore to the infectious form? That was a tricky study to do, but we recently published one this past year looking at basically the program of gene expression used by B. anthracis during its progression from spore to the vegetative form as it begins infection. And that's given us a lot of clues. So basically what we see is that as it goes from spore form, where it's dormant, and it begins growing inside a mammalian macrophage, so this mimics the, the beginning of inhalational anthrax. What we see is that there are a couple of different metabolic pathways that the bacterium basically really turns on to a high level, indicating that those pathways are really important to the bacterium during that particular stage of infection. Now we can see, for instance, that it's turning on 
essentially all the genes involved in making something called biotin. And that indicates to us that biotin must be limiting inside that host cell and that biotin biosynthesis must be really important to the bug during that stage of infection. Now, knowing that, we can go in and start to look at biotin biosynthesis in more detail. And when we do that, we find that if we can knock out biotin biosynthesis, we can attenuate the infection. We had no idea this was going to happen, and so we're getting some really nice clues that we wouldn't ordinarily have ever come to, like the fact that knocking out biotin biosynthesis enzymes attenuates infection. I want to thank Dr. Nicholas Bergman, a nationally recognized expert on anthrax who has been our guest. We have been discussing the future of anthrax research and defense. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be safe. Be informed. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.